Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like. All at the same time. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great-tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great-tasting, high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. Welcome to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. And today we're doing a book report of sorts with a syndicated conservative columnist, former Fox News host, and a Vietnam-era veteran, Cal Thomas. The book is a watchman in the night, what I've seen over 50 years of reporting on America. As a journalist, pundit, author, and TV and radio commentator, Cal has been an elite journalist with a fascinating background. During the 1960s and early 70s, he worked as a reporter at NBC News. But during a hiatus in his underground education, he joined the U.S. Army and served with Armed Forces Radio. His career as a popular columnist began in 1984. Thomas later joined Fox News as a political contributor in 1997. And until September 2005, he hosted After Hours with Cal Thomas. From 2005 to the end of 2015, Thomas was a columnist for USA Today, where he wrote articles with friend and political opposite Bob Beckel. Thomas has written extensively about political issues, and he supports, among other things, many American positions related to Israel. And he and I share not only military service, but also an alma mater, as he went to Walter Johnson High School in Bethesda, Maryland. So with that, let's say hello to veteran, journalist, and W.J. Spartan, Mr. Cal Thomas. How are you, sir? Well, fine, Phil. That was a wonderful introduction. Thank you very much. I'm sure you know they... uh changed the name from Spartan to Wildcats at our old high school because uh, some of the woke people there felt that Spartan was too militaristic. <laughs> In fact, it's interesting you note that because I was there for the pivotal year. I was a Spartan for the first two years of my high school. And then Woodward down the street, the other high school, our rivals, joined us when they closed it. And so I had a, yeah, I had a letter jacket with a Spartan and a Wildcat. I was a sort of confused about my identity for a little bit but either way so good to be off democracy boulevard there in bethesda maryland and yep. uh it, i i just trip on that thinking you walk yeah, the same the halls you walk the same halls with the mighty moo with the big cow that was painted on the uh chimney there on the high school 
Yeah, those were more innocent days. I don't know what day, what year you graduated, but, uh, you know, we didn't have guns or drugs in the school. Uh, we didn't have to worry about, uh, uh, police being outside as you see in so many schools today. Things have really changed a lot and not for the better. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. It is kind of a stark contrast. Even though my era was later, I was late eighties. Um, it still seemed kind of blissful. We were, you know, going to arcades and we were hanging out with friends and not everybody was so scared of everything. And it really kind of is highlighted and sort of shown in your book, A Watchman in the Night. Let's jump into that because it's been described as a road trip over 50 years of journalism in American life where you've served as a watchman on culture and politics. Give me the 30,000 foot view of the book and, and, and really where the title comes from, A Watchman in the Night. Well, I took it from a couple of Old Testament verses in the Bible where the ancient Israelites posted a watchman on the wall at night after the gates closed to be on the lookout for invading armies and other bad guys seeking to do harm to the Jewish people. Gee, not a whole lot has changed, has it? Uh, and I kind of see myself as uh, holding a lamp up watching for these invading armies. But in still, instead of uh, actual armies, we're being invaded by cultural and financial and political rot. We have a history. We don't have to live in the past, but we can learn from the past. We are not the first generation to walk the earth. We don't have to invent uh, the wheel or discover the use of fire. We have many, many experiences in our past that we can learn from. But too many people today are behaving as uh, this is the only time that's ever existed, and we have to figure things out all on our own. That has led to a $33 trillion debt an open border, which no nation can sustain, and a loss of a shared sense of moral values, all of which I write about. Uh, and, and I think the, as you say, the 30,000 foot view would be that human nature never changes. You know, I find that sometimes when I do watch social media myself, people are lamenting things or they're talking about, I can't believe this and I can't believe that. And yet it occurred 50 years ago, 40 years ago, sometimes it occurred five years ago and yeah. we seem to forget we've got this like super short attention span. And that's why I can't wait to dive deeper into the book. Uh, before we get to more from the book, including some of the incredible people you've interviewed over five decades, I was curious to note as a veteran myself, that real quick sentence in your bio there about a hiatus during your undergraduate education, where you went from being a reporter which you started at, at at the age of 16, if I'm not mistaken. Well, I was a disc jockey in uh, suburban Maryland, right uh, near where we went to high school at a station called WINX. I didn't know it at the time, but my now wife was working uh, outside the station, squiring around celebrities while I was on the air, spinning uh, rock and roll music and reading the news. When I was uh, 18 or 19, I joined NBC News in Washington as a copy boy uh, back in the day when they had such things. And um, that launched my great interest in journalism and politics, and uh, I've been reporting and writing about it ever since. To think in that day, like I was doing middle school radio, but it really wasn't until college that I understood like what radio was and how to do it effectively. And to think that you could start in that career trajectory as a mere teenager. I was fortunate. There was a, there was a disc jockey from the station who came to our teen club. I was president of the teen club and announced that he was going to uh, have a little uh session on 
uh, for people who are interested in talking on the radio. And I, I'd never thought about that before. And I said, well, that sounds interesting. So I went and he said, well, you've got a, you've got a good voice for a young man. Uh, why don't you come out to the station and uh, meet some people? And I did. And they, they, uh, I, I was put in this slot of high school reports they did every week on a Saturday morning of what was going on in your high school in Montgomery County, Maryland. And the station manager heard me and say, Hey kid, I'd like to have your own show. And that, as they say, is the beginning of the history. Yeah, man, that's exactly why I got into radio. And uh, for me, it was quite a journey as well. Uh, let's jump back into the military service real quick. How did you end up working for Armed Forces Radio? Because that was a coveted billet when I was in the service. Always wanted to go to AFRTS, maybe in Korea, maybe work out of Japan. Um, how did you end up doing that? Well, we um, back then we had something called the draft. And a lady on the draft board who said, that I reminded her of her grandson, uh, called me up and said, I thought you'd like to know that your number's coming up and you may want to make some plans. So I was working, as again, as a copy boy at NBC, and uh, Vietnam was beginning to rage in the late 60s and all the controversy surrounded that. And uh, I didn't want to go, and I was newly married. And so uh, I talked to Peter Hackus, who was then the Pentagon correspondent at NBC News, and he uh, called up this general at the Pentagon went over to meet him, and he said, I can't make you any promises. I said, I'd rather go to Armed Forces Radio than to uh, Vietnam. Uh, but he said, if you enlist, you'll have a better chance than if you were drafted. So I enlisted, and uh, some strings were pulled, and I wound up serving at uh, Armed Forces Radio in New York. And uh, at uh, I, I used to say I was fighting communism at Broadway and 57th Street. Did you ever meet the legendary Adrian Cronauer? I did not, but of course, very familiar with him. And uh, he was a force on the uh, Voice of America for many, many years. Great jazz program. Big influence in the Soviet, old Soviet Union. And of course, if the name doesn't immediately ring a bell for the listener, of course, it was famously portrayed by Robin Williams in the movie Good Morning Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, uh, yeah, again, one of those one of those stories that kind of lit my fire. I'm always taken with how he how easy it was or not easy, but how people could get into the media back then by just simply going to the building and looking for work. It doesn't seem that way at all today. As I mentioned earlier, it seems like the media enjoys having well-educated people that have some experience, but often come from these really elite colleges. But in the sixties and seventies, wasn't like that, or was it easier to just go in and, 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 and say, Hey, I have an interest in being in the media and showing that you had some ability and just getting the job with some on the job training. Well, timing and knowing someone helps a lot. I told the story of how I started there with WINX. And uh, uh, I tried to tell young people when I advise them today, uh, first of all, to get counseling, if you're thinking of going into the media, but if you're determined, uh, then uh, take any job, get in the door, you can't do anything from the parking lot, uh, empty trash, clean bathrooms, get inside. And the other thing I learned early on was that older people love to give advice. You can learn more on the job from people who are professionals than you ever can in a classroom. I was in charge of filing scripts of the correspondence at NBC News, and that was my writing class. I would take them home at night, look over them, see how they wrote their sentences, uh, see the uh, the short sentences that they took from what we call the trunk wire then that was written for newspapers primarily, the Associated Press. And uh, that was my uh, that was my writing class. That was my education. So uh, take advantage of the opportunities. And uh, while things change, uh, you mentioned the universities. Uh, most of them, of course, uh, have singular worldviews about uh, government, about the economy, 
about, uh, you know, cultural issues. And uh, this is very difficult to overcome. If you have a different point of view, if you are, for example, a conservative, a Christian or whatever, you have to be as wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove, kind of hide, hide that. But I've said, and others have said, uh, that the greatest power the media have is the power to ignore the stories that are not covered uh, are sometimes more significant than the ones that are. Look at the Hunter Biden laptop story that was covered up for months and months and months, uh, reported in conservative media and put down by the liberals because it was reported in conservative media. But uh, uh, so I, I say uh, find stories, young people, that uh, the others aren't covering, make a case for why they should be covered. And uh, you'll be making a great contribution, not only to your career, but also to the country. Now, with that, before we jump back into the book, A Watchman in the Night, do you see some danger there? Because now with the proliferation of technology, you know, a lot of people are making their own reporting. You know, they sit down just as we're doing on a Zoom call here. They're recording maybe something informative, uh, maybe something going on. Maybe it's just a fierce opinion. But do you find that with technology, we're actually not reporting more stories? We're just making more noise? Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way to put it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on the Internet that is not true. Falsehoods are passed around. I'll get emails occasionally. Hey, have you heard about this? And the person has copied 500 of their closest friends on social media. I said, yes, I have heard about this, and it's false. Go back and look it up, research it. When you find that it's false, then send emails to all those people you sent the other two and tell them that it's not true. Uh, speeding up the process by which we receive information is a good thing, but spreading around falsehoods and being sure of the credibility of what it is that you are uh, spreading around is equally important. Let's just take what's happening in the Middle East right now. You have this bombing or missile strike on the hospital in Gaza that uh, unfortunately killed and appears around 500 people. The first word about it was from Hamas blaming Israel. They had no evidence of that, but that went around the world thanks to the UN and thanks to Arab media. And then when Israel comes out after taking time to investigate and found that it was an Islamic Jihad rocket that misfired and hit the hospital, uh, you know, that old line about uh, uh, truth is uh, halfway around, the, a falsehood is halfway around the world before truth can get its boots on is very true in this situation. People start out with a narrative. Uh, if you're for smaller government, you don't care about the poor. And then they look for things that fulfill that narrative. So we have to be careful as we consume news that we are consuming it through the right narrative and through the right prisms. Otherwise, we fall in under the influence of the progressives who have an agenda, in my view, to undermine this country, or in the words of uh, former President Obama and current President Biden, to fundamentally transform the United States. Do you find that people in general in America today are consuming information on sort of a flavor basis. Some people like one news network, so they consume all of it. Other people like another news network, so they consume all of that. Are we, as Americans, are we drinking from too much of the same thing that fulfills our own identity rather than trying to make a broad assessment based on drinking from several different flavors? 
without question, my late friend, you mentioned Bob Beckel, used to compare it to going into a gas station and filling up with the ideology that you already believe in. So liberals tune into MSNBC and CNN. Conservatives tune into Fox News or Newsmax uh, and uh, get reinforcement. Well, you don't do that with food. You don't just have a steady diet of ice cream. You have to have vegetables and meats and protein and uh, for a balanced diet. So I think we need a balanced information diet for no other reason than to uh, uh, know what uh, those who disagree with us are thinking and why they do disagree. Now, I learned some things from liberals. I'm not 100% right all the time. I don't know if they read me, probably don't. Or if they do, they put it in a brown paper wrapper so nobody will see it. But uh, uh, I, I think a balanced diet is a good way to go, whether it's food or whether it's information. But you got to make sure the information is accurate. A lot of stuff gets thrown out there through these politicians and fundraising letters and other things that have an agenda attached to them. Uh, it helps to have seen it all, as I have, so I'm not surprised by anything. But, uh, you know, let's take the Washington Post. I read the obituary section every day. Uh, just to see if my name is in there. But uh, if I'm really interested, I'm going to call up the funeral home and see if the person really died, because I don't trust much of what comes from the Washington Post or the New York Times, frankly, because it comes through a prism of ideology. And uh, they're writing basically for the secular progressives who believe as they do. So be cautious and maybe do your own research. Yes, you go to the gym to work out. You can't get in shape by watching an exercise video. A constitutional republic requires active participation and not just only at election time. Ronald Reagan used to say we're only one generation away from losing it all. Uh, this constitutional republic we live under is not the natural state of humanity. You look around the world, you see dictatorships, oppression of women, uh, the denial of the right to vote, all kinds of other things. We are an, an oasis in the midst of a vast desert. And if we don't get this right in every generation, if you lose it, it's very difficult to get back, as we've seen in other countries. Let's jump into the book here, A Watchman in the Night, what I've seen over 50 years of reporting in America. Your opinions have been founded by a lot of your experiences. Yours is especially fascinating because you've interviewed so many people. Talk to me about what we'll find in this book, about some of the greatest interviews you've had or some of the greatest interactions you've had with some of the power people in America. Well, some will be obvious, uh, like Ronald Reagan, who I interviewed on several occasions, had lunch with him once in the White House, Margaret Thatcher, um, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, I've known for, I don't know, 35, 40 years, um, other Israeli leaders. Uh, it's hard to think of them all because, you know, when you're writing a column, you're always thinking about the next one. I if somebody will say, yeah, I love what you wrote last week. I said, what did I write? I don't remember. I have to look it up. <laughs> so, um I think uh, this is one of the few businesses, and maybe the only one, as you know, where you get to meet a wide spectrum of people from different backgrounds, uh, political, social, and showbiz. I wanted to go into show business before I went into the news business. Now the news business has become show business, so I've arrived. Uh, I think one of my favorite interviews was with Julie Andrews, who I stalked for 40 years before she finally gave in and came on, came on my old Fox show. You can still see the interview on YouTube if you type in my name and Julie Andrews, one of the biggest suck-up interviews you've ever seen in your life. I loved her. She um, uh, single-handedly, as I said on the show, made me fall in love with the musical comedy format. Marvin Hamlish was a great friend. 
many, many others. It's just, it's a, it's a great job. It's a great profession to be in. I can't think of doing anything else. People say, when are you going to retire? I say, well, I don't play golf. And uh, I can't think of anything else that uh, would give me as much satisfaction as uh, writing about things of uh, uh, contemporary politics and culture. So, so much to unpack there. And I'll say that a family favorite, even with my children who are elementary and middle school aged is the sound of music. Uh, I've been on that mountain. I spun around on the mountain. I didn't look as good as she did, but you know, (laughs) I did it anyway. And I'm not going to ask you to sing either Cal. So thank you very much for that. Well, that'll cost you more. Um, share with me a little quip about President Reagan. Well, he he was difficult to know at a deep level. This is why his biographer completely missed it in the book he wrote about him. He was part of a generation that didn't uh, wear their emotions on their sleeves, who didn't get in touch with their inner selves, who would probably never appear on Oprah and cry. He he was different, but what? separated him from a lot of political leaders is that he had thought out his policies, written them out in radio commentaries over several years before becoming governor. And certainly uh, after becoming governor, when he was out of the lecture circuit and before running for president the first time in 1976, where he opposed Gerald Ford. And then, of course, won the nomination and the election in 1980 and the reelection by a landslide in 1984. You you just couldn't get past uh, a veneer or self-protection. Now, World War II people would talk to each other. They would share experiences. But if you were part of another generation, it was very unlikely they would share their, their deepest thoughts with you. But Reagan had been a Democrat. He'd been a Roosevelt Democrat. And that was very helpful in understanding why he changed his positions and became a Republican, not as a pragmatic thing. But as uh, an ideological thing, he looked at what worked and what didn't, and he rejected the things that did not work, which was mostly within the Democrat Party, and began to embrace the things that did. Self-control, uh, living within your means, whether it's your personal budget or, uh, or the national budget. And, uh, and these things were, were fundamental to him. And you can read some of those. I mean, those, those books have been published, including some of his, uh, his writings for the commentaries. It's fascinating to read. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, reporting for ConnectingVets.com, the military news and veteran lifestyle website. Today's guest is Cal Thomas, who's both an acclaimed conservative columnist and a frequent commentator on Fox News. Let's bring in author, syndicated columnist and journalistic legend Cal Thomas, who is with us now. <laughs> Cal, it's always great to see you. Thank you, Eric. Same here. Of you know course. you're getting old when you're referred to as a legend, but thank you anyway. <laughs> well, in my book, you are. I mean, you, <laughs> you have you. had an incisive analytical journalistic view uh, for decades. But he started his broadcasting career during the Vietnam era serving in the Army as a broadcaster on Armed Forces Radio. Since then, he's become a staunch conservative voice in newspaper columns around the country, as well as Fox News. His latest book, A Watchman in the Night, chronicles his 50 years of reporting on American politics and pop culture. During our conversation, we talked about the legendary guests he's interviewed over the years, including several meetings with President Ronald Reagan. What? separated him from a lot of political leaders is that he had thought out his policies, written them out in radio commentaries, and before running for president the first time in 1976, 
He shared how the things he learned from President Reagan shaped his opinions of the left and right in American politics today. Well, I think one of the, the lines I remember most from him was we were having lunch together in the in the White House uh, with some other people. And uh, I, I asked him a question. And I, I don't remember the question, but the answer was, um, uh, I'll frequently give an order and see it frustrated several layers down in the bureaucracy. So he was talking about the swamp before it was known as the swamp. People come to Washington and say, I'm going to change Washington. No, you're not. It's entrenched. Washington will probably change you. Very few people can come in. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is the civil service. The Democrats entrench their people at all levels of government. So when Republicans dare to win an election, you have people in the government who are Democrats and liberals and will do all they can to try to frustrate the advancement of those policies. Uh, so this is why we need to, you know, elect more people at other levels of government, uh, from the school board uh, to the White House, uh, so that we get uh, different outcomes. Uh, elections do matter, but uh, so does the bureaucracy. I've long advocated for an outside auditor to come in and to do a top-down audit of government if the program, if the cabinet agency is performing according to authorized legislation and it can't be done better and cheaper by the private sector, we keep it. If it's not, we get rid of it. Any business does that, but only the government doesn't. Another one of Reagan's great lines was, the only proof of eternal life in Washington is a government program. You know, it's easier to kill a vampire than a government program, but the analogy is good because both suck the life out of the economy. Uh, let's talk about some other legends that, that you've shared some time with. And I read in your bio, you would frequently have dinners or lunches with people from opposing views and, in fact, struck up a great friendship with Senator Ted Kennedy. Why did you do that? And what were some of the great dinners that you got to host? I would call Ted Kennedy a friend. Um, uh, you know, uh, the first president I ever saw up close was his brother, Jack, when I was 18 or 19. Sander Van Oker, who was then the White House correspondent for NBC, took me over and watched him swear in Adlai Stevenson to become the U.N. ambassador. Uh, well, I don't hate anybody for their politics. Some people hate me for mine, but that's their problem. We are all Americans, as as corny as that may sound. And if we don't get this uh, great experiment right, then who is going to and who will replace us? And what kind of government and ideology will it be? So if we want to put people on the other side, that's another phrase I don't like. You know, my liberal and Democrat friends aren't on the other side. They're fellow Americans. If you want to put somebody on the other side, put the, the Iranian uh, mullahs on the other side. Put Putin on the other side. Put President Xi of China on the other side. There are plenty of people that belong on the other side when they oppose uh, democracy and equal rights and all of these other things that we take for granted. We have to stop looking at each other as enemies. When uh, Lincoln made his uh, second inaugural address, he said, we're not enemies, we're friends. That's the way to look at it. And if you respect another person, you get an opportunity to hear how they came to their point of view. And when you hear how they came to their point of view, then you earn the right to be heard yourself. But if we're simply throwing rhetorical barbs back and forth at each other or labels, MAGA Republicans, 
secular humanists, uh, then we're not really going to know each other. And, and that, that's a tragedy. You know, our, our national motto, e pluribus unum, out of many one, has devolved into out of one many. We're hyphenated Americans now. We're identified by our ethnicity or sexuality or all of these other things. And nobody talks about what it means to be an American anymore. You have some schools now where they don't even salute the American flag because there are so many kids from other countries in there. This is America. You've got, you've done away with valedictorians and salutatorians in many schools because it might make underachievers feel bad. But achievement is now penalized and failure is now subsidized. So when you do that, guess what you get more of? One of the things I was taken with in the overview of your book, that you had some serious thoughts within this book on the media fueling discord and anger. Well, because if you find a solution, you no longer have the issue. Uh, so we know what has to be done with Social Security and Medicare is just a prime example, which is the main driver of our debt, Social Security and Medicare. Now, the Democrats love to pound the Republicans, saying that they're going to take Granny's Social Security and Medicare away from them. They do it every election cycle without fail because it works for them. It's not true, but people get scared because they don't really look into it or pay attention. But Social Security and Medicare need to be reformed. How do you do that? Well, you begin incrementally raising the retirement age. People are living longer than ever. This whole idea of retiring at 65 and maybe dying at 66 and saving the government a lot of money is no longer valid. You you have to, you know, remember uh, what uh, Jack Kennedy had uh, focused on uh, physical fitness. He had a whole bunch of physical fitness people. Why don't we go back to that? It's better to prevent a disease or an ailment than to treat one. Costs a lot less. Costs nothing to prevent it. Costs a lot to treat it. So everybody knows what needs to be done. Social Security and Medicare are going to run out of money in a very few years, but the politicians won't touch it. There are a whole lot of other issues that they won't touch either. Close the border, for heaven's sakes. Teach right from wrong in the schools, patriotism. There was a supplement years ago called the McGuffey Readers. They taught patriotism, respect and love for your parents. They included scripture verses, all kinds of things that are banned today. Well, who took a survey and found that all those principles were bad for creating a well-rounded education student who could uh, care for himself or herself as an adult? Well, now we have more and more people addicted to government. Uh, so there are solutions to everything, but uh, the media, especially cable TV, likes to have on two people, one who says, you're ruining America, and the other, no, you're ruining America. And, well, you're a secular humanist. Well, you're a Bible-thumping bigot. And the host says, well, we'll be back with more civil discussion after these messages. Now, real people don't behave like that. You know, you may have a neighbor who has a different party or faith or persuasion than you are. But you don't throw the window open in the morning saying, what are you going to do to ruin America today? You wouldn't live very long comfortably in that neighborhood. So it's all a game. It's all for ratings. It's all for fundraising. The polling is is often skewed to provide a uh, a predetermined outcome. If people wake up and see this, how they're being flim-flammed and lied to, then maybe we can make some progress on these important issues. Don't all major news organizations claim to be presenting the truth? Yeah, in part. But you have to realize that conservative media is a reaction to the one side, the one dimensional 
uh, approach by the liberal media over many years. When Reagan uh, did away with the uh, equal time provision uh, required by the FCC, uh, then that opened up a, a whole new avenue for ideas to be promoted. And certainly technology, I mean, the, the left had a, had a monopoly. The three networks when I was growing up, ABC, NBC, and CBS were all that there were. If you wanted to do research, you had to go to a physical building called a library. Now you can Google everything. There was, uh, there was no satellite radio, no talk radio, but all of that is, was a reaction. Uh, by conservatives and religious people who felt that their values and views were being stereotyped or completely excluded from the media mix. Uh, so you have to look look there. And while I would say, yeah, there's a worldview on the right, but there's a worldview on the left, too. We talk a little bit in the book here about what it's like to be an openly Christian man and that you've managed to succeed as a columnist within a profession where you have said that uh, most are rejected or even scorned for being a Christian. Well, the introduction of the book was written by Tom Johnson, who was then the uh, publisher of the Los Angeles Times. I'd met him when he was a White House fellow back in the 60s. He's an LBJ Democrat, but a very fair-minded individual who believes that responsible opinions uh, from all sides ought to be included in newspapers and uh, on television. He is uh, kind of a rare bird these days, I would say. He wrote a lovely introduction to uh, the book, uh, for which I'm very, very grateful. So it helps to know people. But, um, uh, you know, I, I always say uh, the power of God opened the door for me. Tom was the instrument that he happened to use. Uh, I try not to, uh, I had a mustache for years. You know, I try to do away with stereotypes of what people think, uh, a follower of Jesus uh, looks like. I remember when I was working at CNN, a producer asked me, um, what are you? I said, tall. She said, no, no, where do you go to church? I said, I am the church. She said, look, wise guy, what do you do on Sunday morning? I said, well, I grab a cup of coffee, look at the newspaper, take a shower. No, 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 where do you go when you leave the house? I gave her an address. She said, is there a building there? I said, yeah. She said, what's the name of the building? I said, what are you getting at? She said, I want to know what you believe. I said, now we can have a conversation. But like the archaeologist who has to dig down through several layers of civilization to find out what he or she is looking for, we have built this incredible structure around the person of Jesus of Nazareth that people find it difficult to get to. They say, well, gee, if I'm going to be a Christian, then I'll have to be a Republican. I'll have to be a right winger. I'll have to vote for Donald Trump. And none of that, that's all irrelevant. Somebody asked me once, what's your denominational background? I said fives, tens, twenties, fifties, and hundreds. I'm not going to let you put a label on me that uh, you don't know the meaning of. I was interviewed uh, at the Democratic Convention in uh, San Francisco in 1984. That was a that was an interesting experience right after my column started. So I had a reporter come up to me, and at the end of the interview, when she wanted to know what the impact of the religious right was going to be in that campaign, she said, uh, by the way, are you born again? I said, what do you mean by that? She said, well, uh, uh, you know. I said, yeah, I know, but do you know? She said, well, I guess I don't know. I said, well, why would you want to use a label you don't know the meaning of? She said, would you tell me what it means? I said, I'd be delighted. Now, the first thing you need to know is that it was not invented by Jimmy Carter, though the guy's initials are the same. So I try to use humor, and I try to disabuse people of stereotypes that they have about people who claim to be Christian, and then I try to love people. You know, Jesus said, 
love your enemies. And the neat thing about loving your enemies is that many of them cease to become your enemies. And they wonder why you do love them. And then you can tell them why. So I think it was St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. And again, that's uh, kind of been fused into your writings and into your thought process that has driven a column for decades. Absolutely see why with that explanation, (laughs) Cal. That's great. Uh, Let's end with this. You know, we've talked about a lot of things domestic, and one of the biggest things that you support is Israel. Most recently, you had an article out there. It couldn't come at a better time because we're witnessing Oh, just just this ugly situation between Israel and Hamas. And so many of us don't know Arab-Israeli history. So many of us don't even know how those borders were delineated. We don't know the accords that were signed through the 80s and then into the 90s, from the Oslo Accord to, more recently, the Abraham Accord. This article says, No Palestinian State. And in it, you wrote, The president said the extreme elements of Hamas, is there any other element? don't represent all of the Palestinian people. And then you went on to make an analogy through characters in history, including Germany and China. Unpack this article for me where you are arguing against a Palestinian state. All you have to do is look at Gaza and what has happened there. When Israel unilaterally withdrew with nothing in return from Gaza, uh, then I said at the time, and I probably wasn't alone, that the only thing I learned in physics before I flunked table of contents is that nature abhors a vacuum. And the vacuum that was created by Israel's withdrawal from Gaza uh, allowed uh, Hamas and the Islamic Jihad to move in and to set up a terrorist base with which they would attack Israel. And so they did. It took them a while to get all their weapons in there, to get things in place. And then they started launching missiles and rockets uh, against civilians in Israel. If they had a Palestinian state, you would see even more terrorist groups in that Palestinian state because they are committed to Hitler's final solution. They say so. It's in the Hamas charter. And despite what you heard some years ago from the PLO, that they recognize the state of Israel to exist, they don't mean it in their preaching from their mosques, in their textbooks that they give their children to train up a new generation of people who hate Jews and think Israel is a is an unlawful occupier of land that they, that Jews have lived in for all, almost 4,000 years. They have had to create an alternative history. They have had to create an alternative religion to justify their presence in the land. And these people are motivated, these people being the, the haters of Israel, the haters of Zionism, these people are motivated by what they believe is a direct command from Allah to kill Jews and to wipe out the Jewish state. They say this, they've demonstrated it over the years, to create a Palestinian state would mean the death of Israel. Period. You went on to write regarding the president saying that the extreme elements of Hamas don't represent all Palestinian people. You wrote, Hitler may not have represented all German people. Mao Zedong may not have represented all the Chinese people. Joseph Stalin didn't represent all of the Russian people. Do you believe that the forces of Hamas that are running Gaza are separate and doing things that the regular citizen, the person that owns a market, the person that is just playing soccer in the street, the kid that, you know, is just riding his bike. Do you believe the Palestinians are different than the Hamas leadership? 
Well, the uh, the Palestinian legislative election, the last one, and probably the last one, was in 2006. And I think it was 56 or 57 percent of the people who voted uh, voted for them. There was a survey taken just before this uh, murderous invasion, and it found that a majority of the so-called Palestinians uh, would still vote for Hamas. Now, Hamas has promised uh, things like uh, better electrical connections, cleaner and better water access, and all these other things that a government minimally should do for its people. But, of course, they haven't delivered. They've delivered death and destruction. They hide civilians in uh, among their missiles so that and use them as human shields so that when Israel comes in trying to destroy a military target, uh, they unfortunately kill some civilians. And then uh, the uh, Palestinians, Hamas, take video of this and hand it out to the BBC and CNN and to the UN, and Israel gets denounced. We've seen this movie over and over and over again. It's on a loop. It keeps replaying and replaying. This is why it's so important for people to understand what is going on. I remember in 1982 going up to Lebanon uh, from Israel with uh, with the IDF and uh, looking at uh, places like hospitals and other civilian structures where, at that time, weaponry from uh uh, Czechoslovakia and other parts of the Soviet Eastern Bloc and uniforms and ammunition were brought in to these civilian areas, including schools, hospitals, other places, so that once again, if Israel moved in and tried to take it out, uh, there would be some collateral damage with civilians and uh, Hezbollah and, uh, and the PLO could claim that those horrible Jewish Zionists were killing civilians, and therefore they should be punished severely. And that was a justification for their terrorism. So you got to know what's going on. you got to know the history, and you have to take the time if you're going to be properly informed. You end the article with saying, as long as U.S. policy includes support for a Palestinian state, there will likely be additional cycles of violence. The Palestinian National Authority should be told that given what Hamas has done, that scenario is no longer possible. Do you feel that the U.S. administration has done anything to make the situation worse or has not done enough to make it better? What's the U.S. relationship supposed to look like, in your opinion? I think we're still in a stage of denial. Uh, which is not just a river in Egypt, as someone once said. Uh, I, I'd like to know, and I wish Scott Pelley had asked uh, President Biden this in his 60 Minutes interview, whether the Iran nuclear deal is still on the table. They've been trying to breathe life in, into that through all kinds of horrible circumstances. I mean, Iran getting a nuclear device would be a horrible, horrible thing. I think they would actually use it. They've said they're going to use it. They said Allah is giving it to them to use it. So I, I just think that we in the increasingly secular West do not properly understand the religious motivations of these people. And that gives them a tremendous advantage. How do you sit down across a table with somebody who believes these things and wants you dead and think you can negotiate some kind of compromise when they think a compromise would mean the judgment of Allah on them and they might not get to heaven in those 72 virgins, or maybe it was Virginians. We could probably do another two hours on this subject, but uh, you know what, I'm going to have to leave it right there. A fascinating book that you've got out and it documents, you know, all kinds of eras that we've lived through. It is called A Watchman in the Night. 
what I've seen over 50 years of reporting on America and a syndicated journalist, author, TV and radio commentator, Cal Thomas. Uh, I'd love to have you back as a army guy with a brief stint there at armed forces radio in New York, uh, during the Vietnam era. I'd love to have you come back. And in closing, share with me just one thing that we're going to learn from this book or one reason you feel it's necessary that we really hear from you in this book and look back at 50 years of reporting. Well, there's that famous line, those who learn nothing from history are doomed to repeat it. It's important we know history, our history and the history of the world, because once again, we're not the first people to walk this planet. We can learn from others, update as necessary, and move forward into a better future. Or we can be locked into an endless cycle of debt and depravity, open borders, and so many things that are destined to doom this nation if we don't turn it around. Cal Thomas, veteran, author, and journalist for five decades. I can't thank you enough for your time. Absolute pleasure getting to know you, sir. Thank you very much. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.